Good morning. This morning I want to continue with the series of talks on transforming the judgmental mind. And this is the eighth in the series. And I'll be continuing the theme that I brought up last time, which was bringing the theme of working with the judgmental mind into looking at uh, the judgmental mind in relation to social conditioning, to a whole range of ways that we might be judgmental, both uh, more consciously and also relatively unconsciously in relationship to quite a wide range of uh, social themes and so forth. And I, I presented this last time as I find a very uh, helpful lens to connect our practice with some of the difficult events of the last month, five weeks, which of course go way, be, go way into the past. And then we've had further violence in the last week. And so I think this theme is actually can give a very helpful way of understanding and seeing ways that we can be responsive to current situation. Making use uh, very much of our inner practices that are our core practices of mindfulness, of loving kindness, of working with intention, being ethical and so forth, and then connect those with other ways of responding. And so today what I want to do is give a, a brief review of what we looked at last time, which is particularly related to um, <clears throat> initially, uh, again, clarifying what I mean by judgmental mind, but then looking at how the judgmental mind manifests in terms of social conditioning. So really the first half of my talk will be on really an understanding the phenomenon. And the second half will be focused especially on how do we respond? How do we, as it were, intervene with the situation? What tools do we have? What, how might we, uh, each of us, understand and respond to this current very difficult situation, which is not just out there, it's also obviously in here. There's both places. And the response I'm going to point to is, is about understanding this connection of inner transformation and outer transformation, how those go together, and then how we might have a sense of where we feel called to respond ourselves. And the kind of the, the, the model I'm going to give is you know, very much informed by uh, a few people. Uh, one of them was Howard Thurman, who I uh, quoted at the end of the session last time, African-American theologian, mystic, activist, who uh, helped organize the first interracial uh, Christian congregation in San Francisco in the 1940s. He was for a long time uh, taught at Boston University. 
I think also at Howard, I'm not, I'm not sure of that. And he was asked near the end of his life in the, in the 70s, he died about 1980, he was asked uh, by someone, I think in his 20s, what should I do with my life? Kind of general question. <laughs> and uh, Howard Thurman, who was very active, he, did, he didn't say, oh, come on down to the church. We really have all this work you need to do. He said, he said uh, rather surprisingly for a lifelong activist, don't ask what the world needs, but rather ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's going to be one of the guides. Uh, ask what makes you come alive and be aware of the world and of uh, the causes and conditions leading to suffering. That's our practice, really. So we have, you know, we have these, uh, this, these current events which really make us look to the question of violence and uh, particularly related to race and a lot of, a lot of questions. And a lot of this is uh, very much related to the level of uh, gun violence in the United States. And I actually looked up some of the statistics and they're quite remarkable. Uh, the, uh, interestingly, I didn't really know this until a little while ago, the vast majority of gun violence is related to suicide. It's not related to homicide. In the US, it's twice as many people die by gun violence with suicides as by homicides. In terms of homicides, the level of violence related to homicides in the US is about 50 times greater in other words, the likelihood of being killed by gun violence is 50 times greater, you know, when they, they do this according to, you know, per 100,000 people or something. It's 50 times greater in the U.S. than in the United Kingdom. 50 times, right? And same thing, you know, it's similar with some of the other European countries. You know, it's different orders. Uh, you know, in, it's 10 times greater than in Germany. Uh, and a little less uh, likely in terms of France, but there are these tremendous disparities. <clears throat> so I'm going to be using this looking into the judgmental mind, which we've already looked at a lot. We have a lot of methods to work with it. Not all of you have been to uh, most of those talks. So I'm going to do a little bit of a review, and as I... I mentioned last time, uh, anyone who's judgmental about me repeating <laughs> this yet again has been given tools to work with. <laughs> okay. So, because, because the definition of the judgmental mind is very important, mostly because the word judgment is used in uh, varied ways in, in ordinary English. And we sometimes use the word judgment simply to mean a neutral, non-charged evaluation or interpretation. As in the diving, uh, 
the diving committee judged that dive to be worth 9.5. Might use the word judge. Or the engineers judged that the Bay Bridge could withstand this level of earthquake. Might use the word judge like that. Or I, I, I looked outside and judged that it was going to be sunny today. We might use judge in that way. I'm using uh, judgment in the sense of judgmental to point to uh, typically some kind of noticing or observation linked with reactivity. And it's the reactive aspect of it, the charged aspect is key to the judgmental. Typically, they're, you know, the ones that are most uh, obvious for us <clears throat> are the, uh, the charged negative evaluations of self or other. And we've given a lot of examples in the last weeks. We can be very down on ourselves. I'm not okay, something's wrong with me. Uh, you know, I, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna mess up this relationship like I messed up the last one. We can be very down on ourselves. We can judge others. That person is so narcissistic, you know, or that person is insensitive, or that person is so judgmental. It's a good one, <laughs> right? And, um, and when you listen for them, you can listen for the fact that there's charge and reactivity. I think, as I've mentioned, I think there are positive judgments where we grasp the two forms of reactivity that we're <clears throat> invited to look at in Buddhist practice are the pushing away in a kind of compulsive way and the grabbing hold. And those are found in the examples of the judgmental mind. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to be looking at. And... You know, the, I, I mentioned how very often, I think not always, there can be an observation or something seen that's accurate. I can notice something about the person who I say that person's very judgmental in a judgmental way. I maybe notice something that's actually important to notice, right? And that's what hooks us. It's often the truth value of the judgment hooks us and we kind of think, I've got the truth, therefore I can do whatever. I can be judgmental, I can be mean, and so forth. And, uh, and so we might be seeing things accurately in many ways. There might be an accurate observation. And we, uh, we can also have uh, an accurate observation and make an interpretation without being judgmental. And I've given the example of, as a teacher, very important for me to make discernment, even to make interpretations of what's happening with someone I work with, and I can do that without being judgmental. I can make it. So it's not, it's not the fact that we're interpreting or conceptualizing, which is the problem. It's the charge. It's the reactivity. It's the attachment to the view. That's where the problem is. Inter observation, interpretation are part of normal human life. Okay? And we've given in the uh, past weeks a number of different ways of working with the judgmental mind. The primary ones have to do with being mindful of them, noticing, studying them. There are practices which I've given just in part of going more deeply into them, seeing their deeper roots. And then I've also given practices where we work with what, a, what I call collectively the heart practices. Very significant loving kindness, compassion, uh, empathy, forgiveness. Very crucial for working with the judgmental mind. Okay, so that's a a way of bringing everyone in the room uh, more or less up to speed 
on that. So last time we looked, uh, we brought forth really from the group a number of different uh, judgments related to social conditioning. And they're also going to typically be connected with some kind of observation linked with reactivity. You know, where there are cultural stereotypes, the observation may be minimal. <laughs> and the reactivity may be most of it. You know? But typically, again, it's typically the truth value, even if it's 5% or 10%, which hooks people. And it's actually also a basis for some empathy. That it's not simply... Uh, you know, it can be mostly kind of crazy and delusional, but there typically is some truth value in something there which may be more genuine. And uh, typically in this area, we get polarized, and we think, oh, that's just wrong, and we, we leave out the, the empathy or the compassion. We'll come be coming back to that. <clears throat> because uh, in, when we talk about responses and intervention, empathy and compassion will be main main tools, main practices. So we looked at some examples last time, such as, these are some from uh, the group from last time, and I asked people not to give the worst ones, you know, not to simply repeat the worst uh, judgments related to social conditioning. And I should say, when I use the word judgments, henceforth I'm referring to judgments which are judgmental, okay? So I'm, I'll, I'll use the word discernment to mean a non-reactive uh, assessment, okay? Just for, for clarity of language. So I asked people to give more moderate, uh, so to speak, uh, judgments, and people gave ones like, those people are bad people, or men are really better at math and science. You know? And we, we looked, uh, last time we saw that there are all sorts of judgments that can be around any kind of... Uh, social theme, you know, uh, can be around, but a lot of the major ones are around areas where, there, where there's a social hierarchy. That is something like gender, race, ethnicity, class, age, um, religion, educational level, physical ability, physical appearance, and so forth. And there are, in the culture, there are dominant groups, there are hierarchies according to those parameters, right? And we all know how to navigate that. I'll come back to that, but that's where a lot of the judgments are. There also can be plenty of other kinds of judgments related to social conditioning. A lot of them are going to fall in that category of being related to the social hierarchies, and I'll come back to that generally. So. Uh, People made comments, for example, about everyone in Marin feels entitled. Okay, that was one. Or, if you're a woman in Marin, it's good to be skinny and rich. And the flip side of that would be, if you're not skinny and rich, not so good. If you live in Marin. Oakland, fine. <laughs> Ber Berkeley, fine. <laughs> San Francisco, okay. Probably not so fun. Anyway, um, uh, if you didn't get good grades in school, you're not smart. Right? So you get the sense of them. Another one, black men are dangerous and scary. And I'm saying these without that much charge. But you know, in, my, in, my, in the way I say it, you can imagine those 
with charge. Women make emotional judgments and shouldn't be trusted as much as men as leaders. Right? Very relevant to the presidential election, right? You know that's going to be there. Um, and so we have these judgments according to these different parameters. Uh, a lot of them are negative, particularly they come from particularly those at the upper end of the hierarchy to those in the lower end. Uh, not so obvious are what I could call more positive judgments, also could be reactive, where people in the upper groups think, I'm better than the member in the lower groups, where people in the lower groups think I'm less than or worse than people in the upper groups. And I think that's true given the social conditioning there's going to be self-judgment if you're in the lower end of the hierarchy for any of the groups, and uh, <clears throat> a positive judgment, still a grasping, in the, uh, if you're in the higher end of the groups. Now, I've um, suggested that this is, you know, we know this is a very charged area, and what I've suggested is that as much as possible, a no-shame, no-blame approach is very helpful in this area. And there are a number, and when skillful workshop or training leaders in this area often give a whole set of guidelines that help people to go into this territory. One of them would be, for example, to know that among those maybe 10 areas of hierarchy that I mentioned, we are each in at least one or two, especially if we live long enough, um, lower parts of the hierarchy. Arguably, children are treated in many ways in discriminatory fashion. Some would disagree with that, but I think that, I mean, you can see in certain ways that's true. The examples I gave were about, you know, people who are of a you know, age enough to be in the military often have not had certain rights historically, right? <clears throat> and you could, we could go further with that. And also people who are elderly are in many ways uh, in the lower end of the hierarchy. So each of us can uh, know some of this from the inside, right? That permits uh, a certain degree of empathy or compassion, and it makes it not the case that I'm just good or I'm just bad, right? And it can, I think, really help tremendously. No one is simply at the bottom, no one is simply at the top. That's a very important understanding for uh, going into this approach without having the defenses come up because it's very, very common in this territory for there to be uh, guilt, shame, anger, confusion, paralysis, especially when things get somewhat real. Do you know that? It's a hard area, right? It's a hard area. It's a hard area no matter where you are located. Okay. And I mentioned how there are also more, you know, there are more obvious judgments and there are more subtle judgments. And I gave the example of the famous doll test done with African-American girls from the 30s to the 50s where African-American girls aged six to nine were asked, were shown a black doll and a white doll and asked which is the good doll and which is the bad doll. 
fairly uniformly, they said the good doll is the white doll and the black doll is the bad doll. That's been replicated, right? So that's the internalization by someone in the, you know, the out group or the lower group of the dominant views, right? very, very common. And you'll find that in all of the social hierarchies. And I gave the, last time I gave the uh, analysis of looking at what um, I was calling and many, many people call in-groups and out-groups and seeing this as a normal part of human life. In every society, there are in-groups and out-groups, there are social hierarchies. I don't think you find any society where that's not the case, some more than others, of course. And um, there are in-groups and out-groups and what's characteristic of being an in-group. An in-group can be along any of those parameters and it can also be something that's more innocent. You know, the, I'm in the group of people who are interested in meditation, right? And, I, and what's characteristic, and that can be one of my in-groups, that's a little, maybe a little more innocent. When the in-groups get connected with power, they become problematic. A lot of in-groups aren't necessarily connected with power. You know, I gave the example of being in the in-group of stamp collectors. Not such a dangerous group, socially. <laughs> right? And, and I, I gave the, I mentioned how this is a normal part of human life, that we have in-groups and out-groups. And we tend, with the in-group, to feel more at ease, we know the rules, we have a sense of what's normal, we have a sense of what's expected. We tend to see the people in the out-group as not so good, as bad. This is you know, a normal human psychology that leads to the judgmental mind. And you find this virtually in all societies, that this is the case. Um, we have more comfort with the in-group, we have more discomfort with the out-group. We learn these rules when we were very, very young. We learn rules about gender and race, for example, at a very, very young age. Psychologists say we learn gender rules by age three. We know what's normal, what's not normal, according to dominant messages. Right? So this is deep in the conditioning. Um, without members of out-groups, we don't uh, see them clearly. We see them typically not as individuals, but as representatives of groups. We don't like to look them in the eye often. Again, it depends on the in-groups and out-groups, but these are very, very common. Um, we don't know how to interact with them, typically. And again, some of this maybe originated a long time ago when to know who was in the in-group and who was in the out-group might have been a matter of survival. It's important. To, so, so in a sense, this is somewhat innocent. You know, we come of age and we have this deep conditioning. And what I'm going to suggest is that this, this deep conditioning is a large part of what leads to judgments in the social arena. And it's workable. And we can actually transform it. And that the practices of mindfulness, compassion, empathy, as well as practices that change institutions and social structures as well as large-scale cultural understandings um, can actually transform these, that this is workable. The ultimate message is pretty hopeful. And that's also, so, you know, a lot of the work uh, that's looked at this has connected these in-groups and out-groups with what's called implicit bias. And you've heard that word. Implicit bias means 
mental associations which maybe originated at age three around gender. And they get so, so deeply imprinted that they're beneath consciousness. We have these biases and they're different, you know, different tests. You can go online and look for the Harvard implicit bias test and see how you do. And it can be a little sobering. The implicit bias uh, means what's there is typically unconscious. It's beneath the threshold of awareness and it's a better predictor of behavior than your conscious views and values. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Right? So it's there. And in a moment, in a little while, in a few moments, <laughs> in a few moments, I'm going to talk about how quite a number of uh, people working in this area find that mindfulness is one of the most powerful ways to reverse implicit bias, and it can be reversed. And again, from the point of view of neuroscience, uh, when they talk about uh, neuroplasticity, what they mean is that even though the implicit bias has been supported a million times, it can be changed. And we can move out of implicit bias and there are practices and a lot of mindfulness practices are key ways to do that. Just like you've seen in your own mindfulness practice, how even though there may be long-standing habits, a lot of them may be connected with the judgmental mind, they can be changed. So neuroplasticity means that even though the brain has fired and the neurons have fired in certain ways, it's not our fate. We can actually change things, including something that's been our habit for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. No doubt about that. So that's the good news. But we have to engage in that process of transformation. Those of us with a regular meditation practice are already doing that. And what, in many ways, we have to do is, is bring our mindfulness to this field, in part, of judgments related to social conditioning, which is what I invited people to do last week. And I'm going to leave some time and hear people's reports of what you found. As mostly I was just inviting people to look and see what's, see what's there. Now, this isn't just a matter of people's consciousness of their views. Again, the reason that uh, <clears throat> implicit bias is a problem is that it gets connected with power. If I have implicit bias about uh, being a meditator and I tend to look down on non-meditators, which probably isn't the case here for a small percentage, <laughs> um, that if I do that, uh, that can cause some difficulties in your social relationships, and, and maybe for some of it is, it is it is an issue. How many can relate to that as an issue? You know, it can can be definitely an issue, and one can have the judgmental mind: I'm in the in group of meditators, and you're not, and you're not spiritual enough, or you know, you're not mindful enough, you know, or you're you're too judgmental, and so. Um, but to, the, to a large extent, being in the in-group of meditators is not connected with social power. The other areas of implicit bias related to those different social hierarchies are connected with social power. 
and hence they have a tremendous effect. In other words, we could say that the, these levels of implicit bias are connected with uh, individual acts of discrimination. They're also very significantly connected with institutional power. Right? We know that uh, implicit bias connect with race, gender, class, even age, and so forth, is connected with um, institutional power that essentially gives favors to those in the in-group and discriminates again against those in the out-group. And all of that's pretty well documented in terms of race and gender and so class and so forth. It's not, not very hard. And I mentioned last time that a lot of researchers think actually the most, the most dangerous aspect, this was a surprising uh, claim, and again, I imagine it's controversial. They said that actually what is, causes far more harm are favorable, favorable treatment and privilege given to those in the in-group. That actually causes more harm than negative treatment to those in the out-group. Yeah. But there's clear that there's both, you know, we know, and again, I gave a number of statistics uh, last time, you know, related, you know, you can find them in terms of medical care. I gave the examples of well-documented well studies showing that uh, African-American men with the same condition get worse treatment in hospitals for, I think they examined particularly heart condition. I gave, you know, there have been a lot of studies, you know, and, and again, so, so the implicit bias gets connected to, uh, gets connected to uh, institutional power, you know, in terms of economics, in terms of hiring, in terms of jobs, in terms of uh, police, in terms of criminal justice, the whole range. There, it, there is institutional power and essentially um, unfair treatment of those at the bottom and privileged treatment to those at the top. You know? And again, the different categories are intersecting, right? So you could have someone who was very upper-class African-American and actually might get favorable treatment, right? Because of the class dimension, right? So these are, it's complex, right? There, there, there's, um, wouldn't get favorable treatment if a police force was doing racial profiling and just saw the person from the back. They wouldn't know that this is a, famous person, right, and so forth. So, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the familiar picture, right? That's the condition. So how can, how can we respond to that? We know that that is a, in many ways, can make some sense of what are the deeper roots behind some of the current issues that are coming to the surface, right? And I think it's very important to go as deeply as we can. There are a lot of pressure in the contemporary society to have more superficial responses, right? That may not get at these deep-rooted issues. And even in mentioning them, you can feel, whoa, that's a lot, right? That these are, these are very deep issues. But I, I, again, I tend to be optimistic. And I think with some of the resources, particularly of our practice, which can be coupled to with resources that help at more at the institutional level, I think we can have a lot of power. <clears throat> so I want to mention, uh, I want to talk for the rest of the time about responses. How do we respond? And I'm, again, I'm going to be hopeful here. On the other hand, this is a lot. 
And again, I'm going to invite us to see where do you feel drawn? Not that everyone has to do everything, but you know, this is a major concern of our time. If you want to, in your own way, move more into this area, what calls you? And I'm going to mention a lot of different options and see what calls you, or a lot of different ways that we can respond, some of them more individual, some of them more uh, with, with a community, some of them more on a, on a larger level. I'm going to start with intention. Intention is a very central part of our practice. And we can, in different ways, strengthen our intention as part of our formal practice. In other words, what is my intention for my practice? And we may have the intention to awaken. Sometimes we enter meditation practice simply with the intention to be a little more relaxed, a little more peaceful, a little more calm. As we deepen in our practice, and I think this is encouraged by teachers, we take on larger horizons. We, we take on the horizon individually to see with more and more depth into our own natures, into the depth of our being. And the message given at the depth of our being, there is incredible love, wisdom, brilliance, that goes way beyond our individual sense of self. Actually touching that and stabilizing that is an incredible resource in working with the judgmental mind and working with judgmental mind around social conditioning. But we're given this larger horizon that we can aspire to be awake or more awake. And we were also given in a lot of our practices the intention to bring love, the caring heart, to ourselves and to others. Our loving-kindness practice has the horizon of bringing loving-kindness to all beings. And I think most of us have done those practices. This is, this is not small. And it's very helpful to connect, or it can be the intention to both help develop freedom for ourselves and for others. Or to really um, become someone who is dedicated to awakening for oneself and awakening for others. For some of us, this requires a shift. There have been tendencies in the way Buddhism has been brought to the West to have it be a very individual practice that I do on my own, it's for me, and so forth. And again, I think that makes a lot of sense initially, but again, there are these deeper horizons. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, a Western monk who some of you know as the uh, translator. He's the main contemporary translator of the entire body of uh, texts of the Buddha. So he's deeply rooted in traditional practice. He's a monk. And he also, I don't know, about 10 years ago, originated an organization called Buddhist Global Relief, which tries to bring that motivation to help others. This is what he said. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles 
as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui, um, that means sort of frustration of, he was quoting in French, <laughs> so the, the ennui of oversatiation, the, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, and so forth. Too often I feel our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. Right? And so he calls for practice to have a wider horizon. This is from Gary Snyder about 50 years ago, the poet and activist and Buddhist practitioner. Historically, Buddhist philosophers have failed to analyze out the degrees to which ignorance and suffering are caused or encouraged by social factors, you know, as we've been examining, considering fear and desire to be given facts of the human condition. Institutional Buddhism has been conspicuously ready to accept or ignore the inequalities and tyrannies of whatever political system it found itself under. The mercy of the West has been social revolution. The mercy of the East has been individual insight into the basic self-void. We need both. They are both contained in the traditional three aspects of the Dharma path, wisdom, meditation, and morality. Wisdom is intuitive knowledge of the mind of love and clarity that lies beneath one's ego-driven anxieties and aggressions. Meditation is going into that mind to see this for yourself over and over again until it becomes the mind you live in. Morality is bringing it back out in the way you live through personal example and responsible action, ultimately towards the community or sangha of all beings. Right? So there you have almost like a, a model of, of interpreting very traditional teachings that could help be a guide for this. And so we also want to see if we can activate that intention to help both ourselves and others. You know, it's, it's found a little bit more in the Mahayana tradition in the Bodhisattva vow to have this deep intention that one's practice be a benefit for all beings. Strengthening that, I think, is an and touching that every day can be a very powerful force in this arena of working with the judgments related to social conditioning. Mindfulness is a key factor. You know, we all train in mindfulness and I think a lot of us maybe have been training to bring mindfulness to the whole area of judgments. In the last week, many of you have brought mindfulness to judgments related to social conditioning. You know, it's, um, it takes time. We have to look over and over again. But mindfulness is a key factor. There's a very, um, it's a very I think, important a person who lives in the Bay Area named Rhonda McGee, who, whom I met uh, several years ago at a, a gathering, uh, and she is a uh, teacher at the University of San Francisco and has been pioneering and bringing mindfulness into working, working through uh, implicit bias related to social conditioning, particularly around race. She herself is African-American and a, uh, I think a professor of law there. She tells a story, you know, just uh, from her own experience, again, another story of implicit bias. When she said when she was promoted to be a full professor, the dean of the law school sent flowers to her in the mail. She lived, she said, in, a, uh, in Pacific Heights in San Francisco, an overpriced San Francisco neighborhood almost devoid of black residents. 
uh, a delivery truck came in, and there was an African-American delivery man who said, I have a delivery for Professor McGee. She's a quite small woman, and she said, I am Professor McGee. And uh, he looked down in the order and back at her, and he, uh, he actually uh, didn't believe her. And he said, are you sure you're Professor McGee? <laughs> and she, tell, she tells that story, that's implicit bias. So implicit bias is there for everyone, right? And a lot of studies have shown that people on the lower end, in the outgroup, so to speak, internalize the messages almost as much as the people in the in-group, right? And, and uh, that, that story illustrates that. And so she, she has been a proponent of actually bringing mindfulness into training around the area of um, social conditioning, particularly around race. And I think her work will have great impact. There's already, there have already been mindfulness trainings given to a lot of police officers. Right? And they're as a key factor for working with implicit bias. Not very many of them, but some departments have had training in, in mindfulness. What does mindfulness do? Uh, mindfulness helps us to see what's beneath the surface. It helps us to be with sometimes with difficult emotions and reactions and not be dominated by them. Is this resonating as something very, very key? Um, Mindfulness helps us to um, see our own conditioning, which can lead to empathy and compassion for others' conditioning. It can can be deeply connected with the opening of the heart. this is, what, this is what Rhonda says. Mindfulness and related practices assist in increasing focus, raising awareness, and have been shown to assist in minimizing bias. A decade of research indicates that mindfulness and compassion practices give us awareness of our emotions and sensations in a given moment, regulating emotional responses specifically reducing anxiety, increasing empathy, and perspective-taking of the other, increasing overall gratitude and well-being. There was one study that that showed that even a a 10-minute-a-day mindfulness practice reduced bias related to race and age on some of these tests. So this is one tool. Mindfulness is a core tool. And she developed a, she's developed a series of practices that can help bring mindfulness, and also she works a lot with loving-kindness and compassion practice into, uh, um, into work with uh, one's own judgments related to conditioning. I'll just mention one or two of these practices. So... She has one practice which she calls, I see you. What one does, and one looks to, uh, one looks into the eyes of everyone in the room. And this would be particularly effective going across in-group and out-group. Because remember, one of the factors, or one of the, uh, one of the, one of the uh, facts of, of those divides is that people in in-groups tend to see members of out-groups as symbols of their group. 
and don't really see them as individuals. So actually, practices where you simply look into the eyes of another across an outgroup, that actually does a lot. Or another one would be actually getting to know from the inside the story of someone in an, in group, in, uh, in an outgroup for one's in-group, among many of these. Um, one practice, there's a wonderful book uh, called Deep Diversity uh, by Shaquille Chaudhry, which I strongly recommend, which is very good for connecting some of these issues with mindfulness, with empathy, and so forth. And he tells the practice of when you encounter someone in an outgroup, ask the question, does that person, do you think that person likes broccoli? <laughs> or something like that. And, and uh, people have found that that can be very helpful. You know, I'm, I think I've mentioned from time to time, I'm in a small group of quote-unquote white Dharma teachers who are looking at issues of race and whiteness, connection with Dharma, and we share a lot of these practices and bring, you know, see people bring them into teaching. And some of the people have found these kind of practices extremely helpful. And we share, we share a lot of this. Um, so actually doing practices where you encounter and know someone from the inside. So this, again, one of the strategies would be connect with people in the outgroup. And, and maybe a lot of our, you know, I think... A lot of our friends already, people we connect with, already are in some of the outgroups connected to us. But connect with people, know people from the inside who are in an outgroup, or maybe in an outgroup where you don't have that connection, and actually try to develop that. Again, that can be awkward. And I want to recall the practice that Ruth King, African-American teacher in this area, has given us, which is to imagine that you have 10 get-out-of-jail-free cards the, you, and you can hand in one, and some people have mentioned you need more than 10, you hand in one of these cards when you make a really awkward, unskillful statement or action. Okay, that's a given in this area, right? That there are going to be a lot of those. That's, you have to have that area, that ha, that, you have to have a lot of get-out-of-jail-free cards to have a no-shame, no-blame attitude in this area. So it's hard, right? Okay. Um, a researcher, another researcher, said that one can actually consciously identify the, I'm going to use my language, the judgments related to social conditioning. As you go into them more deeply, you can replace them by counter-beliefs. You know? And this is related to very much what we do on an individual level, where you go very deeply and see how your own um, sense, I'm not okay, might be a core belief. As you go more deeply into it, it's possible to transform that and in a way substitute it with some sense of, I am a beautiful being. That, that gets stronger and stronger. That's what we do with more personal judgments. You can also do something like that at the social level. You can deliberately uh, go into the judgments deeply and substitute some of one, what you have found to be implicit bias with something that goes counter to it and ask what is going to support that counter belief, if you want to call it that, or that counter tendency. Um, again, empathy and compassion are going to be crucial. Really taking the perspective of people with different views, different experiences. You can do that as an individual practice hearing the radio, the news, you can do that with individuals, you can do that just with people close to you. 
Anytime we're strengthening empathy practice, which means to be able to have an, a sense of the inner experience of someone without being judgmental, this is a crucial capacity. And a lot of us have been developing that. So these, I think there's a whole range of inner practices which are crucial, which in a way need to be much more widely shared and taken up by uh, people interested in transforming implicit bias or transforming some of the negative social conditions. You know, too often it's just to focus on more outer solutions. Still, the, the, outer, the outer work has to be connected with this. The inner work by itself is not enough. We may feel more called to do some of the inner work, but somehow we need to connect this with work that we do at the level of community, at the level of an institution, at the level of a whole society, to find different ways to shift the institutions, right? And, and, and this could be done individually. You don't have to be at the biggest level. There's a lot of effort here at Spirit Rock to work with diversity issues right here. You know, it's challenging at times. Uh, institution like East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland, which I um, am part of, has had that intention from the beginning. And it's probably a model for what can be done in the whole rest of the, uh, for the rest of the country. So one can actually shift one's institution, your, your workplace, your school, your uh, spiritual institution, and so forth on a local level and bring all this into play you know, in different ways. That takes different skills, and I'm not going into so much depth about what that means. And then one can also bring in a focus on relating to the larger social area, the large, larger social arena in ways, <clears throat> in ways in which one feels called. called. And again, I'm not, I'm not so much focusing on that, but it's very, very crucial to connect one's own inner work along these different dimensions. And there's a lot to be done. I think we almost need to have developed a whole set of practices, maybe in five years or 10 years, we'll have established practices that we do every day to combine the mindfulness practice that we're doing with mindfulness of this aspect of conditioning, right? And I could see that. I can see a whole range of practices that deal with the different dimensions of our own conditioning and suffering. That's, that's a vision, right? I think that's uh, very possible. So just, just to close, um, my... Uh, my suggestion is to see what calls you. To see what calls you in this whole area. Uh, you know, there, there are just so many ways to work. You can work on an individual level. Working on the level of a group is very significant. I find the work we've been doing collectively at Spirit Rock and my participation in the small group with other uh, teachers has been very, very significant. It's like Something like that can be very crucial to connect with three people, five people who are interested in exploring this. You know, I've done this with race. One could do it with any of these other areas to become more well-informed. It's a support for looking into one's own conditioning and learning how to transform it, and especially having a sense that everyone shares this. Again, it helps us to avoid the shame and the guilt, the anger which is, and the paralysis, which is quite common, right? We can see that. 
and see where you're drawn out of all these areas. So I think I'll finish with three quotations. Okay. The first is from Dorothy Day, who, again, a lifelong, uh, lifelong spiritual activist in the Catholic tradition. She said, you will know your vocation <clears throat> by the joy that it brings you, very similar to Howard Thurman. You will know your vocation by the joy that it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. Sometimes there can be a lot of moments without joy until you get to the joy. <laughs> important to know that. <clears throat> and this is from the Tibetan tradition, Shabkar, from the, around 1800. He said, let your life and your practice be one. And I'm interpreting that to mean all the dimensions of your life, not just some of them. Let all the dimensions of your life and your practice be one. And then, again, from the Christian tradition, St. Anthony of the Desert. I think probably like 1,500 years ago or more. Every day I say to myself, today I will begin. So thank you. So it's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot there. I'm looking for, and I think it's partly up to us as teachers to make available uh, some of these practices. I, I think I'd like to invite Rhonda McGee, maybe co-teach something with her over several days here. Right? I think we have to make this practical. How do you, how do, you do this? Not just, I, and right now it's somewhat leaving it to you, but I think we need to do a lot more, and I think I do, personally. So let me, we have uh, time for questions, reflections, and we have the, do we have the microphone? Yeah, great. So any reflections or questions? <clears throat> so we have one here, is the mic working? Yeah, now it is. Do we have one on the side? And let's say our name also. My name is Martha, and um, most of my time I spend coaching... A little closer, you know. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I coach women and diverse lawyers yeah. at law firms. Um, one of the reasons I do that is because uh, there is so much um, bias and so much unfair treatment within law firms, because as you described, they're very hierarchical, they're yeah. very privileged... The people who tend to run law firms are white guys who have no concept of the experience of the people they're bringing mm. in. So law firms have all these programs about diversity, but they don't do anything. Mm. And I occasionally go into firms and teach a workshop on unconscious bias, mm. but once they've gotten that workshop and they get their one hour of CLE credit, it's kind of like, okay, we've got that done. We don't have to do anything Implicit else. Implicit bias. Right. Done we, that. Done that. You know, check that box. Yeah. And occasionally I also teach meditation workshops at yeah. law firms. Um, and if they've done it once, it's like, okay, good, we got that. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how do I take all of this and make an extended program in law firms that actually gets the white guys to show up. Yeah. And really, you know, when you, when you said mindfulness will actually make the difference about bias, I yeah. thought... 
well, that would be great. How do I actually make that happen? Yeah, that's a great question because how many can relate that question to different institutions you're part of, right? People, in a sense, have a good heart. Right. Uh, and there, there's some intention there. Um, and I think something like that question is also, is a question really for all of us. And um, different strategies. Um, you mean, I can, ultimately what needs to happen is that all the people in that firm need to have an ongoing commitment. Right. And, you know, one way that would be expressed is for people to have, like, ongoing training and practice, let's say, in mindfulness and empathy and compassion, right? And uh, often that needs... Um, I mean, one strategy is to find people at the top who buy into that. Right. That's one strategy. You know, and where they say, this isn't just a one-hour thing, this is mandatory ongoing training. It's going to take something like that. I think there are probably different strategies to get there. Right? Uh, you know, another strategy for you might be just to develop the training and offer it and see who comes. And it's very likely, and you can have this perspective, it would be very likely that there'd be some people in positions of power who would, uh, who would realize what it takes really to have a significant change and help implement that. So change sometimes in these settings comes from the ground up, sometimes from the top down, right? Sometimes both. Uh, but, but you could, you know, um, could offer the training and just to, just to give focus and to use the tools, but some kind of ongoing work because again, Implicit bias, uh, as we know from our own mindfulness practice, just with our own habits, not necessarily connected with social conditioning, you have to look at them thousands of times right. and see them and work through them, have empathy, compassion, and so forth. So something like that, some, this, this would go back to the intention that I was mentioning. It, it has to be a deeper intention and deeper understanding of what it takes. Right. Yeah, thank you. We have another right up front. So uh, one thing that's come up a lot in conversations that I've had with people yeah. in, in our social justice work is the tension between finding common ground and finding empathy yeah. with others and the fact that everybody has their own different flavor yeah. of pain and suffering and, and those are not equal as, yeah. as we just discussed. Yeah. And my sense is that some folks perceive an effort to say, yes, I connect with you, we are both human, I have also felt pain and suffering as an effort to erase the unique dimensions of right. somebody else's pain. Right. So, so, so when one of us uh, will say, you know, I can connect to your fear, to your loneliness, to your frustration, I too have felt afraid right. and lonely and frustrated, you're saying, yes, but your fear, loneliness, and frustration is not the same as I, as a young yeah. black man in the street, feel because right. of my particular position in life. And I'm trying to figure out how we can make empathy flow without this dimension of patronizing or erasing of, mm -hmm. of the uniqueness of another person's condition. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an important question. Right? Um, and, you know, this is sort of, that question is sort of the backdrop for some of these sort of almost like ways that people go to the position all lives matter versus black lives matter, right? Well, obviously all lives matter is true. And it's often perceived as erasing awareness of in-groups and out-groups, right? 
and, and erasing the reality of institutional discrimination, power, and so forth. Uh, so that would be the danger. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I think empathic understanding of another when you're going across the boundary of in-group and out-group uh, would tend to open up to see the differences, I would think. So empathy in itself doesn't necessarily rest in some we're all equal stance. It can, if it's done, if one really has empathy, you can say, oh, there, you know, I can, you know, uh, I can be empathic up to a certain point, this is like me, and oh, it's not like me. Or maybe you say, yeah, it's like me in terms of what I experienced with my mother in terms of age discrimination, but it's not like me in terms of racial discrimination, right? So one can make, somehow one has to keep going deeper, acknowledge both commonality and difference, uh, and kind of hold that as the perspective, and to be uh, cautious with only going to commonality. That's, you know, because the commonality is going to, the emphasis on that is going to obscure the reality of in-groups and out-groups, which has to be acknowledged, right? So that's, um, and again, strong tendencies in our society to go to that, which, and again, it's, it's, we can see, um, because it's similar to the logic of judgments, because there's some truth value there, there's some truth value to saying all lives matter, clearly, right? But um, it's a partial, tr you know, it's a, it's a truth which can obscure other truths, right? So it's tricky, isn't it? And so, uh, you know, does that make some sense? You know? Be time for one or two more reflections or questions. Uh, we have two here in the back. Hi, um, I'm Thomas. I have a reflection for um, creating empathy for people in the out group, which is imagine them as children. Yeah. And um, if you've ever worked with young kids, they're usually running around and laughing and having a good time mm -hmm. and not too worried about, um, you know, the, the things that divide us. Mm -hmm. And so if you, um, if you can remember that that homeless person was once a child, yeah. you know, that can help you to connect. Yeah, it's a beautiful suggestion. Uh, for a lot of people, that can be very helpful um, to, I mean, when you heard, if you heard for the first time that story of the doll test and these young African-American girls and you can, you can say the 1940s, having already internalized the, you know, the anti-black feelings and believing it, essentially. I mean, that, that's heartbreaking. Right? That is really, uh, even if you've heard it, you know, for me to say it for the, you know, I've said it many times, when you touch in on that, that is, it's heartbreaking and to, you know, somehow, you know, when we look at children, that can be a skillful means for empathy and compassion. And it's also a valuable tool at times for ourselves. Sometimes when we are harsh towards ourselves or judging ourselves, 
for some people, not all, seeing oneself as a child can bring a sense of love of self. That's sometimes hard to access as an adult. You know, I'm just an adult. I'm, you know, I've made my mess or whatever. But as a child, one can sometimes, it can open the heart. So I think a very, a very skillful tool at times uh, in, in many ways. So uh, that could be a very valuable tool in this kind of work yeah? or in one's own, one's own practice or, or to know that this person was deeply loved by uh, the parents, right? To know that. Because we obscure that. When we, when, we, when we get into the judgmental mind, remember, we're polarizing and even we're almost like objectifying. And the person is not really someone who has an actual uh, inner experience. It's, it's, it's some other, it's some personification of some social category, right? We lose the empathy, we polarize. Maybe just one more from uh, Jim, I think. Yeah. Thank you. I'm Jim. Uh, just following up on the, just I'm reflecting on how personal this is in the sense of watching myself starting to change, listening to someone else's situation, validating their situation without dumping mine in. Because we're, we're all needing that validation and yeah. we all have stuff and, and just being able to, okay, listen to them, yeah. the, the commonality like what you're, you're talking about. But it's, it's, a, it's a big one. You know, yeah. It all starts with that, that I have to be able to, okay, I'm, I've got my pain and suffering right now, but that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to listen to this other person. And not top, I call it topping. Remember that term, the right. topping? Right. Oh, you think you're hurting? You know, what about my cancer and my, my stuff? Right, it's, right. It's uh, yeah, in, um, in listening to another, I mean, again, we're um, practices which are crucial in an interpersonal setting involve mindfulness. So I can track when, okay, this person's talking and I'm actually rehearsing how I have my issues that are similar. <laughs> right? Mindfulness helps us track that, right? Helps us to know, oops, uh, let me listen. So mindfulness help, helps us to listen more fully, to listen more respectfully, to watch one's own mind, to know when one's triggered. And yeah, and to, in, in, a lot of, uh, in a lot of settings, there might be guidelines even to really, uh, really stay in the listening mode and that there'd be a chance for everyone. And so often when we, you know, in a lot of, we sometimes do it here, we just have a chance where the only thing to do is to listen. You know, so, okay, in this exercise, listen to this person for three minutes or five minutes. And there's no, you know, you're, uh, it's just listening, no speaking up yourself, right? And so guidelines like that can be very helpful in a lot of these settings. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot, isn't it? And, and um, yeah, it'd be interesting to do some of uh, Rhonda McGee's practices together. Um, you know, I'm, at, I'm, I'm not going to be back here for six weeks. How many of you, um, I want your honest response, how many of you would like to continue some with this area, maybe do some of those practices? The, okay. And how many of you are ready to move on to another topic? 
And there's a little, probably a little social pressure not to raise your, <laughs> raise your hand with that one, admitted. Uh, a little bit of a setup, but uh, please, uh, can you hand the mic? Uh, I, it's just a question of clarification. I wasn't sure what you were asking about uh, continued practices of working with the judgmental mind or in particular with respect to... Well, I was, I was asking about continued work with the judgmental mind related to social conditioning. That, and, that, and there was, there was uh, um, so I won't be back for six weeks, so your, your task for the next six weeks, should you take it on, uh, or at least just do it for the next week and then see if you want to continue, uh, would be to keep on looking at this. Again, see if something that I mentioned sparked you. Again, it could be to practice empathy consciously every day for five minutes with someone in one of the outgroups where you're in an in-group. Again, it could be across race, gender, class, age, all sorts, all the ones that were mentioned, right? Um, it could be to listen empathically. A second practice would be to track your own judgmental mind, either uh, particularly negative, but also positive, when any of these judgments come up. That's the second kind of practice that you could do. Track it, look at it. You know, one thing I didn't mention, another practice, is simply to be better informed about the experience of someone in an outgroup. Some of that could be to read history, could be to read books, could be to sometimes even read novels, you know, or read accounts that help you to have uh, <clears throat> knowledge that you don't presently have. Another one might be to look into uh, a place where you work or a local community and see what's happening in any of these areas of uh, <clears throat> you know, where there are in-groups and out-groups to help work with this. Another one would be to give attention to what's happening nationally you know, and look into look into these issues, maybe with the lens that we've had. You, know, you can, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> you also can read more, you know. Uh, uh, Rhonda McGee's work is on the web. It's spelled uh, M-A-G-E-E. -E. You can look at some of her work on um, <clears throat> bringing implicit bias, uh, sort of deconstruction into the area of race. Um, and there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of very good work in this. Uh, those would be a few ways of practicing. So see what resonates with you and see if you can make a commitment to look into that for the next week. Again, a lot of it's going to be having intention, maybe at the beginning of the day, maybe at the end of your meditation session, to, uh, to work with this. Remembering that the most difficult aspect of our practice is remembering to practice. Intention is a, is a prime way to, help, to remember to remember. Okay? okay? So let's sit quietly and see what comes to you. What kind of intention do you have for the next week and maybe a little bit beyond? And then we end by remembering that our practice is very much for our own well-being, but it's also for others' well-being.
And may the fruits of our time together be offered to ourselves, to each other here in this hall, and then beyond the boundaries of this hall to all beings for their benefit, for their well-being, and always remembering that we are part of all beings. So thank you for your kind intention and uh, may it go fruitfully and I look forward to hearing what happens and um, wish me luck with my writing for the next six weeks. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.